Well, today we are in the second part of our series, um, Hope. <clears throat> Last week, Pastor Willie talked to us about the foundation of hope, uh, that Jesus is our foundation, and so we want to continue to um, move forward with this theme. And I want to talk to us this morning about renewed hope. What do we do when hope seems to have faded? What do we do when hope doesn't turn out quite the way we had expected it to? And th- these are hard questions to wrestle with, but I trust that as we leave here today, that maybe we will just receive a bit more from God to help us through those times in our lives when it's not that we've given up completely, but man, we've really had our hopes dashed. Webster defines hope this way, to want or wish for something with a feeling of confident expectation. To want or wish for something with a feeling of confident expectation. You may have heard of the term hope against hope. This is defined as to continue hoping for something even when it may be in vain. To continue hoping for something even when it may be in vain. And how many of us haven't maybe in some place in our lives hoped against hope? We wanted something, we needed something, we've prayed for something, and it's like everything is saying it's not going to happen. Everything is saying this will never happen never take place, or or whatever it may be, and we hope against hope. We hope even though it may seem that it's in vain. So how do we renew our hope if our hopes have been dashed? This morning I want to look at part of the Christmas story that maybe, um, I don't know if it usually gets as much attention as some of the other parts. This usually goes somewhat unnoticed, and that's in Luke chapter 1, verses 1, uh, starting in chapter uh, 1, verses 5. Here we're going to look at a couple named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And they are the, uh, they're going to be the parents of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the guy who goes out to foretell of the coming of Jesus. And he plays a significant role. He plays an incredibly important role in the, the beautiful story of how Jesus comes to this earth. So let me, let's just look at this, this event, this time, a little bit. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of King Herod, Herod king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth, also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Now Luke is writing to a guy named Theophilus. And he wants this guy to know the timing of this story. So Luke is not doing one of these, well, once upon a time there was this king. Or once upon a time there was this couple. What Luke does, he says, in this time, in this place, here's the story. And so Luke gives um, us this time frame of King Herod, or Herod the Great, as he's sometimes also known. And so Theophilus would have immediately known this is the time when this was happening. This is the era. This was the landscape. And Herod would have been known to most people. Herod was so very highly regarded by the Roman Senate. Herod wasn't just a nobody. The Roman Senate had such high regard for Herod that they named him the king of the Jews. He was also politically skilled. He was so politically skilled that he held on to his seat for many, many years, for 40 years. Most people did not, most kings did not hold on to their seats that long. 
They were either assassinated or they were voted out or there was some behind-the-scenes thing that took place that, that would get them out of power. But Herod was so skilled politically that he was able to hold on to his seat for 40 years. What Herod is maybe best known for is his ruthlessness. Herod was an absolute ruthless person. It was the only way in some ways for him to survive. No one dared cross Herod. He would have you killed without any question. He would, he would kill a number of people and there would be no concern for him at all. Herod had a number of wives. But he had one in particular that, that he truly loved. So he had all these different wives, but there was one woman, there was one of his wives, this was the only one that he really loved. And so when he became suspicious of her, he had her killed. Because nothing was going to stand in the way between Herod and his throne. He had his mother-in-law killed. Two of his brother-in-laws were killed. And two of his own sons by his favorite wife were also killed. And it's possible that the cruelest thing that Herod always did was he would do anything to hold to his throne. This is the man who when he heard that there was a king born in Bethlehem, which we know is Jesus, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was told, who is the king of the Jews that is born in Bethlehem? This is the man who would send a group of soldiers over to Bethlehem and without any question, say, find every infant child and drive a spear through it. Herod could do these things without any concern, without any remorse. Herod was a brutal, ruthless individual. So when we sing the song, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, let us know that when Bethlehem was hardly a quiet, still place, when Herod came looking for Jesus. While Herod lay dying, he had a group of protesters arrested and burned alive. Five days before his death, he had his son, another son, killed for trying to take the throne prematurely. It's said that some people say that his son recognized that his father was going to die and that the kingdom needed a ruler. And so instead of allowing the kingdom to fall apart, his son stepped in to take some leadership. And when Herod found this out, he had him killed, even though he knew he was going to die. And finally, maybe one of his cruelest acts was that in his will, he had instructed, he instructed that scores of prominent Israelites would be executed on the day that he dies so that there would be weeping in Israel. Herod knew that the, Israel, the Jewish people would be glad when he was gone. And so he had a, a lot of prominent Israelites killed so instead of celebration on the streets, there would be weeping. This is the political and the social landscape of the time when Jesus is born. I think sometimes we picture the Christmas story unfolding like we often see in nativity scenes or we see in little plays or movies where the only true drama of the day was Joseph trying to find a ma um, an inn for Mary to have the baby in. And so Joseph is running around and he's looking for a place and, and finally all they find is this stable, this, this cave where Mary can have her baby. And I think sometimes we may look at these Christmas stories the way they're depicted and see, well, that must have been the only struggle of that time. But the truth is, 
the Jewish people would have pretty much been in fear of their lives. There would have been an incredible amount of tension. Herod overtaxed the people. He persecuted the people. And this, these people in this time would have been afraid because Herod could roll into your town and take whoever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And so this is the landscape. And Luke tells the readers this. He tells us this with a simple line. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. But this gives us a glimpse of the history of when these things happen. And for those readers who read this back then, especially, they would have known exactly the difficult times that these would have been. But the beauty of what Luke does is he barely gives Herod any mention other than to just simply date the story. He uses Herod simply to tell us this is the time period for when this happened. So instead of dwelling on Herod, he moves to the bigger picture, to the story that will last for eternity. We're also introduced to a man named Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest from the country who took his turn to serve in the temple. In that time, there were way more priests than there were temples. There was only one temple and there were many, many priests. And not every priest would even have a chance to go in and burn the incense. Some priests would never have this opportunity. Every priest was given this chance only once in their life. And the way they chose the priests is they would cast lots. And this time, the lot had fallen on Zechariah. And so he's chosen. He's selected to burn the incense that were burned twice daily on the golden altar within the inner temple. This wasn't the Holy of Holies. This was before the veil of the Holy of Holies. And so for a priest, this was about as close to God as you could ever get. And this would have been one of the greatest honors of Zechariah's life. But Luke tells us something else about this man and his wife. Verse 7. But they had no children. Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Again, we can quickly read that and we can move on and say, okay, okay, so they had no, kills, uh, no kids, but this was an important bit of information for um, us to know. This is important for us to uh, understand because as the story moves forward, we see an incredible miracle happen. Now during that time, and I think in some ways still today, there's a lot of stigma attached to not having children. In that time, it was commonly seen as a result of sin. So if a woman couldn't have a child, and back then a woman was always blamed, so if a woman couldn't have a child, or if the couple couldn't have a child, they would have assumed, everybody would have assumed, that this couple must be in sin, or that this woman has sinned. And God is somehow punishing them, and he's, doing, he's punishing them by withholding a child from them. And so Elizabeth would have lived with this. She would have known that everybody thought this. And I think this is why Luke is quick to point out that this couple was blameless. It didn't mean that they've never sinned, but as far as the law of Moses, they were blameless. They kept the law. I don't mean to, I don't want to at all be insensitive here, but honestly, as a man and as a father of three children, it is impossible for me to understand the pain of a couple, especially the woman, who can't have children. 
And I think the only people who would truly understand the pain of this would be those who are going through it. Now I say that because I want us to understand that Zechariah and Elizabeth aren't just going through this going, oh, I guess we can't have kids. This would have been a couple who would have been mourning deeply. Elizabeth especially would have been hurting a lot. Wondering, why would God withhold us a child? Why can every other couple maybe have kids, but we can't have kids? And Luke tells us something else about them. That they're already both old. They're no longer in the prime of their baby-making years. And so it's safe to assume that this couple has maybe accepted their fate. They may have talked, or they maybe talked at times about how nice it would be to have kids. Or imagine if we had kids, I wonder what they would be like. But it's very possible that they've come to terms that they will never have kids, and that this is just the way it was meant to be. And maybe you can begin to see yourself a little bit in this story. Maybe it's not this situation, but maybe it's something else. Something that you've been hoping for. Something that you've been longing for. Something that you want. But just hasn't happened. And as far as you can see, it's the timing for that now has passed. It's not going to happen. And so you sort of move into survival mode. You just sort of cope with it. You just deal with it. Hope has been dashed. So Zechariah is now chosen to go to the altar. And when he gets to the altar, an angel appears to him. Verse 12. When, the, when Zechariah saw him, the angel, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He, will, he is never to take wine or any fragmented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, not only are you going to have a child, you are going to have an extraordinary child. Now let me ask you, if you were in Zechariah's shoes, and you've kind of come to terms with what has happened in your life, you've come to terms with the way your situation has unfolded, how would you respond? The reason I ask this is because in a little bit we'll see Zacharias' response, and, and his response seems so normal. His response seems so natural. Especially when you consider that this man has accepted his fate. In a sense, you could say this man has given up hope of ever being a father. Look at Zechariah's response, verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, 
How can this be? Seems reasonable, doesn't it? How can this be? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Now men, this guy gives us a little bit of marital advice right here. He says, I'm an old man, but he doesn't call his wife old. He just says, my wife is well along in years. A little freebie there from Zechariah, you know. Uh, men never say, I'm old and she's old and wow, you know, we're not going to have kids. He's just like, I'm an old fart, but my wife, she's just well along in years, you know. Um, so a little merit advice there from us. But, okay, back on track. This seems like a reasonable response, doesn't it? Doesn't Zacharias' response seem reasonable? How can this be? After all, he's, he's given up hope on this one. So this would be shocking. This, this is not something you would have expected to hear. It's almost as if he would be saying, you know, angel, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, this would have made sense. 10 years ago, this, yeah, I could believe it, but not now. You see, we've given up on this one. We don't think this is going to happen. So how can this be? Sometimes when hope is dashed, it is hard to hope again. And sometimes when hope is dashed in one area, it feels as if the hope is dashed in every area. Haven't you experienced that? Where you, your hope in this one area is completely destroyed, and, and then someone says, well, what about this? And it's, and it's hard to say, well, yeah, if, uh, if my hopes didn't work out here, why would I think that my hopes will work out here? And so sometimes when hope is dashed in one area, suddenly it feels like hope is dashed in all areas of life. So it's possible that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are now just going through the motions of life. So now, if, if you're a person who doesn't like the Bible, and you don't like some of the things that happen in the Bible, I, I guarantee you what, what you're about to read is just going to reinforce your view. And I'll be honest, this next part is, is a little bit hard to take. Look at the angel's response, verse 19. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now look at verse 20. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Ouch. It's like, come on, the guy had one question. He just was wondering how, and now he's not going to be able to speak until all these things happen. But let's keep reading. Verse 57. Verse 57. When the, when the time for Elizabeth to have her baby, when, the time, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared in her joy. So everything the angel said happened. She had her baby, and, and people were celebrating the birth of this baby. And then when the baby is given the name John, Zacharias can suddenly talk again. Don't you love happy endings? And they live happily ever after. 
What a beautiful story. What, a, what an amazing journey for this couple, hoping and wanting a child. And, and it seemed like it had passed. The, they were never going to have a child. And then, you know, Zacharias doubted and he couldn't speak. But then they had their baby and he could speak again. Happy ending. But the reality is this. Not all stories of, not all of our stories have happy endings, do they? Some of us hope for things that never happen. Some of us hope for things that just do not come true like we had wanted. Some of us don't have the happy ending. So what do we do? Last year, some of you may remember us praying for Rick Warren and his wife Kay. And we said to you last year that uh, this couple has influenced this church indirectly. I don't think anybody here has maybe met them. Maybe some of you have. I haven't. But way back, Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Church. And, and Bill Weeb, who was the pastor here at that time, he and I, we read this book. And we decided back then that this book was going to help guide us how we led this church. And so we said that we are going to have purpose for everything that we do. And our mission statement um, points that out. Leading people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. We're not here just to gather. We're here to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Well, last year, April 5th, their son Matthew, who had struggled with mental illness for years and years and years, his whole life actually, took his life. And we're going to watch a short little video clip um, and then we'll, we'll talk more about it. Wiping back tears, Pastor Rick Warren and his wife Kay were back at the pulpit of their Southern California megachurch. Love you too. For the first time, sharing how faith and hope were severely tested by their son's death. Not for one second did God forsake my son. Not for one moment has God forsaken me. In April, 27-year-old Matthew Warren committed suicide. He battled mental illness his entire life. For 27 years, I prayed every day of my life for God to heal my son's mental illness. It just didn't make sense why this prayer was not being answered. But I would rather walk with God and have my questions unanswered than have all my questions answered and not walk with God. I would encourage you to watch that full sermon. It's called Getting Through. Uh, you can find it on their website. It's an amazing... I actually really wanted to just play that whole sermon. Because the way this couple wrestles with their pain and with their hopeless situation is amazing. You see, it's one thing for me to come and say to you that we should hope even when our hopes are dashed, but it's something completely different when you see a couple like that who's had all their hopes dashed say that to us. Kay Warren shared in her sermon that she had a hope box Someone had given her this box and, and she would put these 
prayer verses in there and she would put sermon scriptures in there and she would read this all the time and she would every morning she would look at these verses and she would pray and she would hope that one day her son would be healed of mental illness and then he took his life and she asked this question so what do you do when hope doesn't turn out the way we expected it to What do you do when hope doesn't turn out the way you expected it to? She says you can do a couple things. You could curse God. You could call Him a fake. You could call Him a tease. You could say, God, you're not true to yourself. You're not true. Who you say in your word is not who you really are. And you could curse God. She says, you could give God an out. You could take all the blame on yourself and you say, it's not God's fault, it's my fault. I should have prayed more. I should have read the Bible more. I should have done this. I should have done that. It's not God's fault. It's my fault. I failed. I'm the reason hope didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. But she concludes that neither of these are a good response. So what do you do when you know that it's not God's fault. What do you do then? See, she says what she knows about God is that she knows that God is not a fake. And what she knows about herself is that she knows it's not her fault. So then what are you left with? I love what Kay says. She says that you are left with mystery. All you have is mystery. And one thing I know about most people is we're not comfortable with mystery. We want answers. We want everything lined out. We want everything explained to us. Why is this not happening? Give me an answer, God. Outline it, outline it for me. Give me reasons so that I will understand. But what do we do when all we're left with is mystery? Here on earth, we will never understand all the answers. But one day when we meet God face to face, the mystery will be explained. So I wonder, is this why Gabriel was so hard on Zechariah? Listen again to what Gabriel says. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. If that doesn't just put chills down your back, I'm not sure what will. But Zacharias is doubting and Gabriel saying, if you stood where I stood, Zachariah, if you saw what I saw, if you knew what I knew, if you were in the environment where I stand, you would not doubt God ever. You see, Zachariah only had his view of things he wasn't able to see the full mystery of god he wasn't able to see the full picture none of us are able to but the angel saying where i stand it all makes sense is it possible that gabriel wanted to shock zachariah from his hopelessness he wanted to shock him to see the big picture to see what god sees To look beyond his situation and be okay with the mysteries 
of God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. What does Jesus say? He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus' instructions aren't believe more. Do more. If you would only know more about me, then I'll give you rest. If you would only believe, if you would only have more faith, then I'll give you rest. If you would only do more for me, I will give you rest. Jesus doesn't do that. What does he say? When you're weary and when you're burdened, when your life feels like it's fallen apart, when you feel like you have no hope anymore, what does Jesus say? In a sense, Jesus is saying, come, stand in my presence. Just stand in my presence. Come to me. There seems to be a bit of a connection here between what Gabriel says and what God's saying. It's if you stand in the presence of God, the mysteries will be made known. And Jesus is saying when you're weary, when you're burdened, when you can't seem to move forward, just stand in my presence. And his yoke will be easy. And his burden will be light. So let me ask you a hard question. And maybe this seems a little unfair. Have you lost your hope in Jesus? I'm not talking about knowing about Him. I'm not talking about believing in Him. I'm not even talking about trusting Him. In your life, is it possible that you feel that He is somehow not walking with you through what you're going through? And you're just not sure in your situation if you can fully expect Him to come through. We said at the beginning that hope was to wish or to want or to wish for something with a feeling of confident expectation. And the question then is for us, are we struggling to remain confident in Jesus. And I want to say to you today, if your life has been dashed, if you're going through unbelievable hardship, that Jesus is not offended with your questions. He's not afraid of your concerns. And so if you're standing, if you're here today and you're saying, I'm not sure Jesus is holding out for me, I've lost my hope. I don't understand why my life is unfolding the way it is. I, I, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe all those things, but when it comes to my life, I'm just not sure where He is. Please know that that's safe. Jesus is not offended by our questions. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says this, And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us. So how do you hope again? How do you hope again when hope has been dashed? How do you hope again when it seems like everything you had once expected, nothing happened, it didn't fall out the way you had hoped. 
The only way to hope again is to embrace the love that God has poured out for us, His Son, Jesus. To come and to stand in His presence. Hope is not, our hope is not in what will happen, but in what has happened. Some of you may need to write that down. Our hope is not in what will happen. Our hope is in what has happened. You see, Jesus was born. He lived. He was crucified and He died. But then He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at God's right hand and He is interceding for us. This is not something that we hope will happen one day. This is something that has happened. And in that, our hope is secure. I'm not trying to give some pat answer. I'm not trying to just whitewash your pain. I'm very aware that right now I'm speaking to a group of people that in here are some people who are hurting deeply. I've met with some of you. I've heard from some of you. I know that some of you feel that your pain is more than you can handle. And over the Christmas season, it always seems to be that this is when it hurts the most. And so maybe you feel that your pain is bigger than anything that you have right now. But I want to remind us that God is greater than anything you're going through. That God is bigger than any pain you have. God is greater than any hopeless situation you may be facing today. And in Him, you are secure. So how do you hope again? How do you hope again? As you stand in the presence of Jesus. Not in what we hope will happen one day, but in what we know has happened. That Jesus has defeated everything. He has finished everything. And Jesus says, come to me. Come, stand in my presence. I wonder if we would be able to do that in such a way as Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of God. If all of a sudden by simply knowing that we're standing in the presence of Jesus, that the mystery may not be resolved here on earth, but the mystery will one day be answered. That one day we will understand and all we know right now is that that will happen. We don't know the answer. We will not know the answer here on earth. But we have this confidence that when we stand in the presence of Jesus, that one day our answers, our questions, will have answers. I invite the team to come up. We're going to sing a, a closing song. And I want to pray for you. I want to pray that if your hope needs to be renewed, that maybe today you would be able to say, I want to just stand Jesus in your presence. I want to just stand knowing that you are still Lord. I want to stand knowing that in you I am secure. And as hard as it is for us to wrestle with mystery, we accept that one day we will have our answers.
That's an easy sermon to preach. For some of you, that's a hard thing to accept today. To us pastors, we, we can say these things so easily. If you need an example today, I would encourage you to use Rick and Kay Warren. How many times have I not listened to their sermons, never knowing that this was the struggle that was going on behind the scenes? I'm not downplaying this. But I have this confidence that you can hope again. Can we be brave for a moment? If your hopes are dashed, would you be comfortable to stand and to say, I stand in the presence of Jesus? Jesus, I'm standing here. I want my hope to be restored. I want my hope to be renewed. Am I asking too much? God loves you. Has a plan for your life. Maybe what you expected hasn't unfolded like you wanted it to. Stay strong. Stay faithful. Continue to live for Christ. And one day as you are standing now, you will stand before the glorious throne of God. I believe that. And He will explain everything to you. You will be left with no questions. You will be left with no mystery. You will know fully. Paul, Paul says that we will fully know and what a beautiful promise. As we are fully known, we will fully know. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your faithfulness. I thank you, God, for your love. I thank you, God, for your provisions. And I thank you, God, for your protection. Thank you, God, for your presence. And so, Jesus, we, we are we're having a hard time with mystery. We struggle when we don't know. And we want to know. Because if we know, it somehow helps us to understand. And, and God, we're, we have a hard time in these life situations when we just can't understand why what's happening to us is happening to us. Or why something isn't happening when we hoped it would happen. So Jesus, we stand now in your presence because that's what you commanded us to do. You said, come to me. So Jesus, we stand and we ask for your rest.
Father, I thank you so much for your love. And I pray now as we sing this closing song that we would truly just celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus alone. Amen.